The podcast you are about to listen to is not a medical podcast, nor is it designed to diagnose a condition. While there are medical experts on this show, any questions regarding medical care or concern should be directed to a primary care physician. Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of grief and loss and being diagnosed with brain cancer, such as glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also, share us with a friend. You can follow us on Facebook at Game on Glio or on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast. Or you can visit our website, thegameongleopodcast.com for our blog, insights, and guest snapshots. Season two of the Game on Glio podcast is sponsored by GT Medical Technologies and Gamma Tile Therapy. Learn more at gtmedtech.com. This episode is brought to you by Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield of Western New York. Learn more at bcbswny.com and by Oncosynergy. Learn more at oncosynergy.com. I've been thinking a lot lately about my journey of healing, the process that I've been going through the past year and a half and where I am to date. I came across a saying recently, well, on a journey of self-discovery, I spent two and a half, three weeks over in Europe. It was a very big step for me. I haven't traveled to another country by myself since I was 21 years old. Have I traveled by myself since then? Absolutely. I've gone to other states. I've visited friends, family. But Mike and I always traveled the globe together. We were adventurous. It was something that we loved to do. And so anytime we went overseas, we did it together. There are a lot of logistics involved in going overseas, in planning a trip, in figuring out where to stay, what to do, train schedules, bus schedules, whether or not to take a taxi. Taking a taxi may sound like something simple, but when you are a single female, it is petrifying. It truly is. You're constantly worried if you can trust the driver, if you will be safe in the back of somebody's car. These are the things that go through your head. There's a lot involved. And even though I knew people while I was over there, friends that I was seeing, I was traveling to another country by myself, more than one country. I needed to do this to gain some footing, to find my way, to figure out exactly where I was going. And during this trip, I was doing work for the podcast. I was meeting with people. It's amazing how much brain cancer and, and just grief and loss in general touches people across the globe. It truly reaches far and wide. And I met a few different brain cancer individuals, one who was a caregiver to somebody they lost, two who were currently walking with brain cancer. And I met one individual who was a young widow, a female with a young son, only 35 years old. We are not alone on this journey. And that is something that I have learned a great deal about over the course of doing all of this work. 
after meeting with an individual. I had gone for a hike by myself. I had Mike heavily on my mind. And there was a saying that I came across that said, silence is the strength of our interior life. If we fill our lives with silence, then we will live in hope. Not all silence is in solitude. We can quiet our minds. We can have stillness in our minds anywhere we go. And so here I was in the midst of this hike with sounds and birds and nature and other people all around me. And I found a moment of silence, a moment of stillness. And it was a moment I desperately needed because within the silence, we're able to find our balance. And that's what we're all looking for. No matter what we do, we're trying to find balance in the fight against brain cancer, in the fight to heal, in the fight to have strength in the midst of healing, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of grief and loss. Silence gives us hope. It also gives us strength. It allows us to find our center. And we all need that. Every single one of us, no matter where we are in our lives or what we're doing or what is going on around us, we need that center and we can't lose that. It wasn't until I got back from this journey, this trip, that I realized how much strength I had and courage I had to actually do what I just did. I was petrified, I was scared out of my mind, but it also showed me a lot about the strength and the courage that I have to walk the path that I'm walking. And if I have that kind of strength, so do all of you. And that's why we're all here. And my next two guests have just as much strength as they plot a course and look for new ways, novel ways to approach how to treat brain cancer. And I am really happy and thrilled to have them on because they're thinking outside of the box. And it's something I think that needs to be done when it comes to how do we approach and how do we tackle finding a way to cure brain cancer. Well, these two doctors from the Lerner Research Institute at Cleveland Clinic are doing just that. And they'll be with us next after a quick word from our sponsor. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery, knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how Gamma Tau Therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, your neurosurgeon implants tiny gamma tiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go on for weeks, you get a head start against tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. Gamma Tau Therapy is for operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, and meningiomas. It is a one-time targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gamma Tau Therapy is FDA cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Gamma Tau Therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gamatile.com. 
Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for the second episode of the Game on Glio podcast. I am now joined by two very renowned doctors who are doing extremely amazing work in the area of brain cancer research. Our first guest is Dr. Christopher Hine, who is the Assistant Staff in Cardiovascular and Metabolic Sciences at Cleveland Clinic's Lerner Research Institute. His lab focuses on sulfur amino acid metabolism and hydrogen sulfide production as therapeutic agents that are targeting aging and diseases such as glioblastoma. Our second guest is Dr. Justin Lathia, who leads the translational cancer stem cell research at the Lerner Institute. He is vice chair and associate professor in Department of Cardiovascular and Metabolic Sciences, and he is also the scientific director of the Brain Tumor Center. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Shannon. Dr. Lathia, I'd like to start with you. Some of the research and the work that you guys are focusing on is just mind-blowing to me, to say the least. But it's interesting, when you were at Drexel, one of your major focuses was around breast cancer. So why the transition into stem cell research and brain cancer? Yeah, absolutely, Shannon. So I originally trained as an engineer, and I've always been interested in developing products, therapies, that sort of thing. And my initial focus was on breast cancer and targeting unnatural blood vessel growth. This was in the early 2000s. And right around this time, stem cell biology really started to come into favor in that we could really model a lot of diseases with stem cell biology. And I got very fascinated with that. And, you know, fast forward to when I was finishing my PhD, the field was running into a lot of problems with being able to regenerate tissue Mm -hmm. just due to a, a series of complexities with transplantation, getting the cells in the right place, getting them to survive. And then I kind of wanted to go back to my roots in cancer. Um, And at the time, it was really shown that a lot of malignant tumors, such as glioblastoma, had a stem cell aspect to it. So these stem cell programs were activated in a way they shouldn't be. So I was able to switch fields again and really try to understand brain cancer from a stem cell perspective. So it's a bit of a circuitous route. But that's how I ended up where we're at today. You shocked me a little bit when you said you started off in engineering. <laughs> I wasn't expecting, I was not expecting to hear that. It makes sense. I mean, even my late husband was actually an engineer. He worked in military defense. There's always this component of trying to figure out a puzzle, in a sense, and, and really look at complex issues and then try to navigate how to solve those complex issues from an engineering standpoint. The brain is extremely complex. And the one thing that I have learned over the course of being thrown into the world of brain cancer is it is extremely, extremely difficult to target and get treatment to the brain to treat brain cancer. Is is that part of the reason why you're focusing is in stem cell adhesion? Yeah. You know, I think uh, adhesion programs are very interesting or or very important for cells to be able to do a lot of things. You know, we're looking at why these tumors have less active immune cells. So this is an area also known as immune suppression. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that cells with these stem cell programs actually attract cells within the immune system that 
suppress the immune response. And another major area we're working in is actually sex differences. Really? So we become very interested in what the difference between a male and a female tumor is. There's actually differences uh, genetically. There's differences in the immune response. If you look at the incidence of a lot of these brain tumors, it's heavily biased towards men. So there's something going on there. But, you know, getting back to the stem cell aspect, uh, you know, it's really allowed us to, to model the disease in a way and really even engage folks like like Chris Hine, who, who obviously is one of your other guests today and a, a good collaborator and colleague of ours, and, and to really explore novel ways that brain tumors are evading therapy, are driving their growth. Interesting. So, Dr. Hine, I'm going to... I'm going to refer this over to you since we're talking about this because your work has been very targeted towards aging, inflammation, uh, genotoxic stress. Do you feel that there's a correlation between this and cellular breakdown in, in the brain that causes these type of cancers, especially when you're looking at, you know, as Dr. Lathia just said, there seems to be a behavior towards men specifically. And I'm really curious, you know, if, if there's a pattern, if there's more of a pattern towards even the age process, because I've noticed over the, the numerous guests that I've had on the show there seems to be a trend towards younger adults being diagnosed um, versus this brain cancer being considered an old age disease, which I think for a long time it was, but that is quickly changing. So uh, I guess I'll first start off um, with the first part of your question. Yes, that it's very true that my background's been primarily in the aging field um, ever since the early days of when I was in graduate school and through my postdoc and the last five plus years as a staff member here at the Cleveland Clinic, my lab's focused on, on aging. And the main reason for that is aging is really a, a strong correlator, if not a driving force for many uh, diseases. So cardiovascular disease, cancer, uh, neurodegenerative diseases, and also metabolic syndromes. So if we think if we can really address um, aging as a whole and find out you know, why we age and slow the aging process down, at the very least, we might be able to delay the onset of many of these diseases, um, and if not, also come up with um, you know, strong therapeutics. And so as a grad student, my lab pretty much focused on comparative biology, so finding out why some organisms develop cancer, why some organisms are also very you know, strongly resistant against developing cancers. And then that also got me interested in a process called hormesis, where a slight amount of stress actually it makes you more resistant towards larger stresses. And so in, in my postdoc, we looked at how undergoing a, a certain type of diet called caloric restriction or undergoing dietary restriction prior to a major stressor. So that stressor could be surgical stress, such as to the liver or to the kidney, but also genotoxic stress, such as chemotherapeutics or radiation therapy, mm -hmm. could make you more resistant in life. Interesting. And as we age that response somewhat goes down. Mm -hmm. And so with the aging process, though, so some of those protective mechanisms could be um, tumor suppression or the immune system um, surveilling for, for, for cancer. And so what we currently look at is, you know, how can we boost up, you know, the things that we lose with age to protect us against, you know, certain diseases such as glioblastoma. I'm curious because I've heard a few theories around this as far as young adults go that, there could be some components 
related to dementia or Alzheimer's, that there could be some type of predisposition within the cells of the brain that could allow them to get brain cancer at a younger age. So could that be why we're seeing more of brain cancer such as glioblastoma showing up in, in younger adults? You know, some of it could be accounted for imbalances in redox, so in terms of the production of uh, free radicals. Mm-hmm. So these free radicals, of course, can, can potentially damage DNA and, and cause mutations in potential tumor suppressor genes. And these free radicals can also damage you know, cells involved with cognition. So while there's not a, you know, a direct connection between, say, neurodegeneration and glioblastoma, at the very least, these imbalances and redox maintenance and homeostasis mm-hmm. could affect both. Okay. So you focus specifically on, right now at least, there's a theory that you have around the H2S system and that it permits GBM growth and progression while impeding the body's natural anti-tumor surveillance. Is that kind of what you're talking about here? And, and what is H2S for our listeners? Most of your listeners would probably think of hydrogen sulfide as a stinky gas, um, and it's been associated as an occupational hazard, especially in the gas and oil mining industries. However, the cells in our own body can produce it, and when our own cells produce it, it's actually quite beneficial um, for the most part. It doesn't really reach that toxic levels. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen is that the H2S that's being produced in our body, at least if we can enhance its production, can be very protective against you know, these larger stresses we talked about. So in terms mm-hmm. of surgical stress to the liver, to the kidney, also against protection against uh, radiation and chemotherapies of your healthy cells. So the suppression of it is what actually allows glioblastoma to thrive. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the hydrogen sulfide is an anti-glioblastoma uh, agent. Okay. It's beneficial for us to produce more H2S to stave off glioblastoma. Now, how would you produce more of that? Is that something that would have to be done clinically or are there things that people can do, like you said, related to diet and whatnot that would actually help them produce more of this? That's a great question. So as we age, our bodies just naturally produce less and less of the hydrogen sulfide gas, which is you know somewhat unfortunate because it's, it's a quite beneficial model. Mm-hmm. What we've seen is that undergoing caloric restriction, so, you know, dietary restriction or intermittent fasting, Mm-hmm. can enhance the, the production capacity of the hydrogen sulfide gas, at least in the liver and the kidney. And we've seen that, um, at least undergoing caloric restriction, that uh, the signaling and, and the bioavailability of the hydrogen sulfide is enhanced to other areas of the body, such as the brain. Um, so just you know, having an individual on a, a proper diet, a well-balanced diet, um, can at least help maintain hydrogen sulfide as we age. Um, other other agents, you know, you know, it's been shown that garlic is is a nice uh, donator of hydrogen sulfide in the body. Garlic is, <laughs> yeah, garlic. Yeah, so my mom will be so thrilled to hear this information. <laughs> I do think it's really interesting that we're talking about caloric intake and intermittent fasting, which to be quite honest, is something that I've been actually doing for years. I do it every single night. I stop eating at a certain time and and then I do like a mini fast every single night. So I think it's really interesting that the body can actually help itself by doing some of these things that you don't even realize that you're doing. These are ways in which they're intertwining with um, the body's response to or against um, brain cancers. Yes. Yes. You guys have a phase one clinical trial going on right now at the Lerner Institute. 
It's aimed at targeting, I think it's myeloid-derived suppressor cells that interact with cancer stem cells in order to suppress the immune system within glioblastoma. Can you explain this a little bit more? Let me tell you the basis behind it. So I would say, you know, between five and seven years ago, we noticed that cancer stem cells could actually suppress the immune response. And people had been thinking about different factors that were secreted by the cancer stem cells. And we were as well, but we were also interested in a direct interaction between uh, suppressive cells of the immune system. And there's a lineage of cells called myeloid-derived suppressor cells. So these are immature cells of the myeloid lineage that get activated upon injury. Mm -hmm. They can either be systemic functioning or they can go to the site of the injury and really prevent uh, the activity of the immune system. So in the case of a tumor, they prevent the immune cells from recognizing the tumor cells and then killing it. So they're almost like a force field. So we started getting very interested in this interaction. And what we realized was you could actually give low doses of chemotherapy. So this is about 20-fold less than you'd give a colon cancer patient, for example. And you can actually poison these immune suppressive cells. So that was the basis for our phase zero, phase one clinical trial, is to see if we gave patients a low dose of chemotherapy, could we reduce the circulating levels of these cells in patients? Uh, and the answer was actually yes. Really? So it, it kind of gave us at least proof of concept that we could achieve this in a patient. And your next question is probably, where are you going now? Yes. So um, <laughs> we're looking at a, a bunch of different strategies that do this. So the chemotherapy strategy is great, but it doesn't impact immune suppression in the brain. It only impacts immune suppression throughout the body. Once the cells are beyond the blood-brain barrier, this strategy doesn't work. So we're looking at a couple different brain penetrant inhibitor strategies. We're also looking to combine this with immune therapies that activate the immune system because we think we can get a really robust result if we go after immune suppression and then at the same time activate the immune system. We, uh, we, we feel like that, that could give us a, a really good shot of getting the immune system to detect, affect, and clear the tumor. The, the next steps that you guys are looking at, how do you tackle this issue of breaking that blood-brain barrier? If you're able to activate the immune system, but it kind of stops uh, at the wall of the brain, because once you get up towards the brain, there just seems to be this natural defense mechanism around the brain where just nothing can get in, nothing can get through. How do you navigate around that? I'm glad you asked that. So definitely my background is not in the immune angle of glioblastoma. But one of the beautiful things of hydrogen sulfide um, is it's, it's a gas. Right. So it can cross the blood-brain barrier um, without a problem. And so my laboratory, in, in collaboration with, with Dr. Lathia's laboratory, is looking at ways we can boost hydrogen sulfide, even if we boost it in, say, the liver or the kidney. We believe since it's, you know, it's a gas that goes through our circulation, mm -hmm. that it will reach the brain and cross the blood-brain barrier and have a positive effect on the glioblastoma tumor in terms of you know, either slowing it down or even killing the, the, the tumor cells. I think your, your viewers would be quite interested to know that there's a lot of other opportunities. So you know, one idea is this idea 
of actually surgically placing catheters inside the tumor or near the tumor and then delivering drugs that way. And, and you know, there's been some work here and other places that have done that. What I actually find to be extremely exciting is there's an idea that you can use ultrasound. So we have several clinical trials ongoing here and one even in glioblastoma where our clinical team is actually giving focused ultrasound to transiently open the blood-brain barrier to try to get agents in. So I think this is a really unique opportunity as well. These approaches are actually very safe and effective. Uh, it's just a matter of what they're doing to the immune system, what they're doing to the tumor cells themselves. Um, so I would say stay tuned for that. But but there, this is an area of active investigation. So now this is the third time I've actually heard about ultrasounds uh, being used to break down that blood-brain barrier a bit. Can you just explain that a little bit more, maybe kind of paint a picture of how that would actually work? I've actually seen one procedure live. So essentially the patient is is loaded into a frame and then they're given focus ultrasound and it can either be low frequency or high frequency. And this transiently opens the barrier. It doesn't break the barrier. Okay. It just transiently opens the barrier and lets things flow in and out a little bit more freely. And then again, over time, the barrier closes. But you can imagine that if you wanted to get uh, a dose of a drug in, you could, for example, do this procedure for 15 or 30 minutes and have the barrier transiently open and then administer the drug. And for example, that's what we're doing with some of our glioblastoma patients. Okay. What we don't know and what, what my lab's interested in is... Um, how does the immune system change in that capacity? Meaning, is it impeding the natural immune response or is it helping it or is it not changing at all? Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, we, we sort of have certain hypotheses, but until we, until we test this in human patient blood, we're, we're sort of still in the dark. So now I'll throw this to both of you. I want to jump on this because as we're talking about some of these new uh, technologies and new treatment options that are being tested and theorized right now, where do you guys feel we are compared to where we were five years ago when it comes to treating brain cancer? Because I can tell you from from my, where I'm sitting, from my perspective, even from just two and a half years ago, three years ago in 2019, when my husband, my late husband was first diagnosed, there are so many more options available now that were not available or even being considered uh, in 2019. So I, I feel like there is this kind of rapid speed among researchers and doctors to figure this out. So where do you guys feel we are compared to, you know, five years ago? I mean, I, I think we're, I think your own experience has highlighted the acceleration and progress. Um, I think we're a lot better than we were in terms of the molecular characterization to try to understand the actual complexity of the tumor now. Now where the bottleneck is and hopefully it'll be circumvented is, you know, we have a pretty good idea of, um, of maybe the molecular alterations, but how that can be leveraged for actionable therapies I think is still under investigation. But I think there's a lot of different therapies, uh, and a lot of them are being developed for other cancers or other, you know, other diseases that are actually easily being able to be applied to to glioblastoma patients. Okay. Uh, and I think I think it's you know it's it's a combination of a lot of the academic centers, 
um, you know, really embracing things. I don't know if, if your listeners know, but the, the National Cancer Guidelines on glioblastoma, one of the first things they say is find a clinical trial. And I think that, you know, as clinical trial enrollment goes up, uh, it actually allows for more of these therapies to be tested. And I think that the therapies are getting more creative, right? Mm-hmm. As you pointed out, Shannon, right? We're talking about ultrasound. We're talking about hydrogen sulfide. Yeah. We, we've been able to get a lot more creative. Chris, what about you? Um, I mean, even with cancer in general, you know, as you talk about these experimental things that that you are focusing on, where do you feel we are now versus five years ago? I think it's 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 the convergence of these, you know, once seemingly disparate fields, um, like you know, Dr. Lethe had mentioned, we would never have thought of you know hydrogen sulfide as potential uh, anti-GBM or anti-glioblastoma treatment, you know, five years ago, six years ago. Um, and it's just kind of being in the right place at the right time where you get two minds, uh, you know, thinking in their own fields and all of a sudden you find this little connector in the middle. And that, that allows for, um, you know, these really, you know, quick and major advancements uh, in the field um, for cancer research, but also, you know, even for cardiovascular research or um, Alzheimer's. So I think it's investment and advancements in, you know, basic research but I really believe um, that's where the big leaps are going to be coming. And it's not going to be so much from, you know, the next logical step in, in a field. It's going to be combining two fields into one. So, you know, combining ultrasound with chemotherapeutics or therapies or combining hydrogen sulfide with, you know, um, like thyroid hormone medications as a treatment for glioblastoma. So, um, you know, where we were five years ago, where we are now, where we are five years from now, um, I believe it's going to be some major advancements that maybe we don't even foresee <laughs> um, right now. But so who knows, maybe in five years, you know, glioblastoma survival rates will be dramatically increased, which I hope. That's the hope. I, and this is exactly why I ask these type of questions, because that's what this podcast is all about. You know, it's about talking about these radical new ideas and being able to think creatively outside the box, which is something that both of you guys are doing in tremendous ways. And I've said it since the day that, you know, my late husband was diagnosed, it would be great if we could treat glioblastoma like rheumatoid arthritis. Maybe it flares up, you're able to treat it, it it goes away, or there's no evidence. A few years down the road, maybe it flares up again, but you're able to find these ways to kind of keep it from really taking over and ravaging the body to the point where there's no going back. And it becomes manageable until there is a cure. And to give people many more years, five more years, 10 more years, and I I really want to see that increase. So this idea that you guys have, this thought process among other clinical scientists and doctors to get us to that point, I think is just, it provides a hope and a drive, not just among other doctors and researchers that are within the field, but among the patients and the caregivers, and this push to really continue supporting clinical trials, because that's what it's going to take. So Justin, I'm curious to hear from you. Do you think as, as it relates to overall neurological health, do you feel that certain individuals who have gotten COVID might become more susceptible to obtaining some type of brain tumor, whether cancerous or not, do you feel that there is a shift in 
the different variants of COVID that could expose somebody who might have already had some type of predisposition? I mean, have you seen or or read anything that kind of correlates where COVID might actually increase somebody's likelihood of getting uh, a brain tumor or brain cancer? Yeah, Shannon, it's a good question. Um, I think it's going to take time. I think it's something that we need to be very well aware of uh, as to who did and did not get it, the severity of the onset of symptoms. Uh, does the individual display symptoms of long COVID? Um, but, you know, these, these tumors are slow growing over time, and then they just hit an exponential phase. So I, I think that the possibility that there could be something exists, but I think it's going to require time more than anything else. So let me piggyback on that by asking you, you mentioned just briefly that these are slow growing. I've heard kind of a mix of different scenarios when it comes to glioblastoma specifically. And I don't know if that translates to other brain cancers or brain tumors, but from what I've heard and my understanding with glioblastoma is that it actually develops pretty rapidly and that you really aren't aware that you have it until you're already at stage four because then the symptoms become more external, but that it really only develops that it can go from a stage one to a stage four within um, 21 days. You know, like it can get to each new stage, each new phase every 21 days. So maybe you only have it for three or four months. Is that the understanding or is it where somebody may have the tumor, the, you know, glioblastoma for six months, eight months, and they're just not aware of it until the symptoms become external? Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably the latter. It's, it's difficult to tell, right? Because a lot of this is based on incidental findings. We're not as humans getting scanned you know, routinely, there's no biomarkers, there's no uh, genetic predisposition. So it's, you know, someone has a headache, someone has a seizure, someone has maybe is in an accident and then ends up getting scanned and then something's found. So I think it's, I think that's the challenge. So we don't quite know how to appreciate this in humans. And, and any of our, our models that we use in the lab are a little bit contrived in that regard. The best sort of scenario you have is if you look at people with lower grade tumors, uh, how quickly do they transform or not transform? Okay. Uh, and some transform fast, as you pointed out, mm -hmm. uh, but some some can just grow for a long, long time and, mm -hmm. and, and really be indolent. So I think that's another area that's been underappreciated that that's thankfully getting more attention right now, both the research and clinically, is what controls malignant transformation. I think this is such a fascinating area, and it's something that I've actually had been making a push for for so long because unlike breast cancer and colon cancer and lung cancer, there's all of these screenings that can be done to kind of help determine if somebody is doing okay, um, if there's a predisposition, if there's markers showing that something has shown up. I'm curious to know the work that you guys are doing is so cutting edge and it's so vital. And you guys are obviously both knee deep in this. I would love to know from both of you, and Chris, we'll start with you. How do you decompress and recenter yourself from doing the type of work that you're doing? Because this is day in, day out for both of you guys. And you guys are in, working in, in different veins but the connection between the type of work that you guys are doing is there. And it's an, up, it's an uphill battle. So how do you recenter yourself 
given the gravity of the nature and the seriousness of the type of work that you guys are doing? At least I tell myself that, you know, no one wins a Nobel Prize in one day. No one cures cancer in one day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the course of a week or the course of a month, you know, maybe we only have a few days that go as planned in terms of, you know, getting good data in, in the laboratory or, or good discoveries. And most of the other days, um, you know, could be you know negative days where, you know, maybe we're not as productive as we want to be. And I think it's important just to note that, you know, it's it's a process that takes time. Mm-hmm. And so I think just taking that pressure off of you to try to cure cancer every single day, is if, if you do that, you're going to get burned out. And on a personal level, plenty of sleep is very important. You know, getting, you know, eight, nine hours of sleep if possible at night. Mm-hmm. Exercise. So I like to run uh, quite a bit. I also like to bike. Mm. And then just, you know, spending time with, uh, you know, friends and family um, is, is incredibly important to do. And Justin, what about you? Yeah, you know, from the, the personal side, it's similar to uh, similar to what Chris pointed out, although outside of biking and running, I also play squash. I, I will say Chris lives in, in close to me, and he's an exceptional runner, and I've, I've unfortunately been caught in his crosshairs a couple times where he ended up <laughs> running around the neighborhood. Um, but, you know, I, I think on the professional side, it's the same thing. This is a substantial investment in a complex problem. And mm-hmm. the other thing that really energizes me is neither Chris nor I work in isolation, right? We both lead teams mm-hmm. and we have really talented people in our lab who are training. And to me, they represent the next generation of scientists. Mm-hmm. So to be able to work with them side by side and motivate them and really instill in them the opportunity they have to change the course of human health, um, to me is really inspiring as well. I think that's a very noble and aspirational goal um, is to focus on the next generation because that's who you guys are leading. It's who you're opening the door for. And hopefully those who are listening, maybe it inspires others to jump into the field. Um, Is there anything that you guys are working on now or that might be coming up that you would want listeners to know about? And if not, where can listeners go if they'd like to learn more information about the Learner Institute and the work that you guys are doing? The one thing I wanted to point out is that I'm a firm believer in the next five to 10 years, we're going to view brain tumors in a different light based on whether it's a male or a female. I think we've come to a point in history where there's just enough evidence that these tumors are different. And, you know, we always talk about precision medicine or personalized medicine. But, you know, we, we need to stop giving the same drugs and the same treatment regimens to males and females because we know they're inherently different. So I think that to me is, the you know, a very actionable thing that we're likely to see occur in the next five to ten years. Um, and, it, you know, in terms of information about our center, we've got a great website, learner.ccf.org, or your listeners can look up uh, the Rose Ella Burkhart Brain Tumor and Neuro-Oncology Center. That'll give you a good idea of our clinical team as well. Uh, but the Research Institute does a great job of posting really up-to-date uh, findings and, and highlighting new work. So I would just say, you know, have your listeners keep an eye out for that. Okay. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad that you actually brought up um, that passionate point of between male and females and how each are treated. I think that is extremely important to focus on. And for our listeners, I'm hoping that that is something that you take away from this conversation, that hopefully that that's where we are 
in the next five to 10 years is that we are able to look at and work within the differences between, uh, you know, how males receive and get brain cancer and then the differences with females and brain cancer. I do think that that is something that we are going to see a transition in as well. And I agree with you on that. I think it is so important to bring up. Um, And Chris, what about you? I would just recommend to your listeners that, you know, always keep an open mind, especially when it comes to potential clinical trials or clinical trial sites. Um, Because again, you know, you know, you think of, you know, glioblastoma is one disease, but it's actually, you know, it could be quite a few different types of reasons for the glioblastoma in terms of mutations. We talked about cell intrinsic and cell intrinsic factors. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one clinical trial might not always be appropriate for an individual. Um, so I think it's just important to kind of keep an open mind of, um, especially as we move into the future with precision medicine, that there might be um, some really, really good trials coming out that'll be very helpful for certain individuals with glioblastoma. And especially when it comes to the trainees, you know, in terms of if you're, if you're a graduate student or, or postdoc or even an undergraduate student or even a high school student right now um, that might be interested in going into medicine or going into science, please stay in the field. You know, even if you contribute just a little bit, you're definitely advancing um, humanity and you know, the chances for better treatment for individuals with glioblastoma. Well, thank you so much uh, for for being on. I really appreciate having both of you here. I think this is a very important conversation. It is creative dialogue. These are topics that I would not have thought to focus on or discuss when it comes to brain cancer topics. And I think that this is very vital information there are things within this conversation that all of us can take away and learn from what we've heard today. I really appreciate having both of you here and taking the time to be with us. And for all of our listeners, we will be right back. Oncosynergy is a biotechnology company that develops therapeutics to dramatically improve the standard of care for patients suffering from the worst cancers. Founded by physicians frustrated with the limited treatment options available to brain cancer patients, Oncosynergy is now on a mission to develop better treatments for those battling brain cancer. Oncosynergy's passion and drive have led to the prioritized development of their leading therapeutic OS2966 for treatment of glioblastoma. OS2966 works by blocking a key receptor that manages cancer-promoting communications between tumor cells and their surroundings. Based on encouraging preclinical data, Oncosynergy has now launched a phase one clinical trial for treatment of recurrent glioblastoma. The trial is currently enrolling patients at Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. Learn more about Oncosynergy and their phase one clinical trial at Oncosynergy.com. As I reflect on today's interview, what I'm left with is a sense of hope, a sense of hearing Dr. Hine and Dr. Lathia talk so passionately about the work that they're doing to find new ways to treat brain cancer, new ways to break through the blood-brain barrier. Hearing Dr. Lathia at the end of our interview talk so passionately about where he sees us going in the next few years. And the way he feels the medical community will see and treat brain cancer when it comes to men and women 
and the vast differences and the approaches that will be taken in just a few years. I can't stress that enough because it leaves me feeling so hopeful. I recently connected with a woman who is celebrating six years, six years with glioblastoma. That gives me so much joy and so much love to see her thriving with glioblastoma. I think about patients like DJ Stewart from season one and Harry LaRusso, who was our guest on episode one of season two, who are both going into three and four years with glioblastoma. And yes, while my own husband didn't have that luxury and he didn't make it that far, to see how many are thriving and succeeding and to see how far things have advanced just in the last couple of years, it really does lift me up and it gives me renewed purpose and strength. I talked earlier about finding strength and hope in solitude, in silence, and it's not just in the silence that you find strength, but it's in everything that you quietly do to persevere, to push forward. That gives you strength and it gives you hope. And when I see and hear the success stories living with glioblastoma for three years, for five years, for six years, for eight years, that is success. When I hear doctors like Dr. Hine and Dr. Lathia talk about the work that they're doing and how hopeful they sound, when I meet companies and foundations like Onco Synergy and GT Medical Technologies and I see the work that they're doing and the clinical trials that are being put forward, I'm excited. I am thoroughly excited and it lifts me up and it gives me renewed strength. So I hope everybody enjoyed today's episode. I truly feel it was so educational and so beneficial for all of us to learn more about the work that's being done over at the Learner Research Institute. And I would also like to let everybody know, for those that are in the area or may be in the area, I will be in Western New York the weekend of July 9th and 10th for the Taste of Buffalo Food Festival. I was honored and privileged to be asked to judge the food festival this year, which is so exciting and so much fun. And again, just another one of those great, amazing things that comes with doing the work that I get to do. And I get to meet new people along the way, and I get to hear their stories. The Taste of Buffalo is a great festival. It's the largest two-day food festival in the entire nation. But on top of that, they do a lot of great charitable work. Some of the money that's raised from the festival goes to really amazing charitable organizations. You can learn more about that on their website for Taste of Buffalo. But if any of you happen to be in the area or are big food fans, head out to Buffalo, New York, the weekend of July 9th and 10th. There are literally over 500,000 people that descend on the city for this festival. It is truly so much fun and a great thing to do in the midst of this beautiful summer that we're having. So hopefully I will see all of you there. And don't miss next month's episode. We have a great, inspiring story from a patient who was originally misdiagnosed, but he's living with brain cancer and he joins us in July and it's a story you won't wanna miss. Until next month, thank you so much for listening. 
a proud episode sponsor for the Game on Glio podcast. Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield of Western New York has helped millions of members since 1936 lead healthier lives. As a community-based, not-for-profit health plan, Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield invests millions of dollars each year to strengthen and enrich the health and quality of life in Western New York. Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield provides a wide variety of health and wellness initiatives throughout our community all year long including a full summer schedule of free fitness classes throughout the region, which can be found online at bcbswny.com slash play. You've been listening to the Game on Glio podcast, the podcast that is designed to educate, advocate, and tell the real stories of those walking the journey of brain cancers, such as glioblastoma and grief and loss. If you like our show, please share us with others. Follow us on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast or on Facebook at Game on Glio. You can visit our website and our YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere podcasts are played.